a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what is going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. And this week, it has been a big one, Keith, when it comes to China's relationship with the Pacific. And it's also something Australian politicians have been watching very closely. So to start us off, Keith, could you tell us what the recent developments have been? Yes, so the Chinese Foreign Minister, Wang Yi, has been touring the South Pacific and he arrived in effect, with a communique already worked out. This is not how the South Pacific Islanders do it. They have what's called the Melanesian way where they talk and talk and talk, but they end up with a consensus. Instead, the Chinese foreign minister jetted in and said, these are our terms, take them or leave them. We still don't know the official version of what was in the document that he was trying to get the others to sign on to. It looked as though they were going to be cooperating in terms of um, information technology. And, of course, the worry there is it'll be an opportunity for China to spy on the South Pacific. They'd want to get access to the vast resources, the fishing resources of the South Pacific, and uh, also they'd want to supply police training, which obviously would worry quite a few people. As I say, a draft document was leaked a couple of weeks ago, but we never saw the, the final version which was going to to the um, heads of the South Pacific Island governments, they, in the end, decided not to accept it. It's a terrible embarrassment for the Chinese government. The Chinese government is accustomed to getting its own way. And here you had um, leaders of just a few million people in the South Pacific saying, no, we're not going to sign on. So it really has been a tremendous week for... Chinese politics and South Pacific Island politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to backtrack quite a bit, can you explain to us, to give us some context, you know, the history of the region, its role in global politics to date so far? I think the really big issue is simply to note the South Pacific is becoming much more of a politically salient region. So in political science terms, we talk about salience as being the extent to which it's on your radar screen or it's in front of you. And the old saying is that the Mediterranean was the ocean of the past, the Atlantic is the ocean of the present, and the Pacific is the ocean of the future. So the Pacific is the largest single uh, waterway in the world, and a lot of it has gone under national control because of the UN law of the Sea Treaty. So you could be a small island, but you'd control the water, its economic purposes, all the way around your island for another 200 miles out. So it's potentially a very rich region. Obviously, you've got the vast fishing resources, which is what was worrying uh, because the Japanese were just, not only the Japanese, but the Japanese, the Taiwanese, all turn up with highly mechanised fishing fleets and basically just sort of like a hoover, they uh, hoover up the oceans. And these are islands that rely on a lot of that fishing for their economy. So the South Pacific is is important that way. Um, it's important also because of what are called the lines of communication. A lot of important telephone cables run still under the South Pacific rather than going into outer space with satellites. So it's important for communications, 
And um, the countries in that area, although there are only a, a few in number, each one has a vote in the UN. And one of the reasons why I think China has been paying attention to the South Pacific is some of those countries still recognise Taiwan as the government of China rather than Beijing. And so China is seeking to win friends and influence people to make sure that in future um, the islanders will recognise Beijing as the government of China rather than Taipei on Taiwan. So it's really becoming more and more the centre of uh, global politics. And, of course, um, President Obama, when he was visiting this country years ago, talked about America doing a pivot to Asia. In other words, he argued that the Americans have spent too much time talking about the Europe, uh, too much time on the so-called war on terror, and instead was going to try to focus on Asia. They didn't go too well because, of course, the Americans are bogged down in a war in Ukraine at the moment. But clearly, the American long-term agenda is to get back to having an influential position in the South Pacific, which traditionally has been called the American Lake. And now you've got other players trying to get into that lake. Right, and China's one of those players. China is the obvious one, absolutely. So in terms of Australia's involvement in the region, what have we seen to date? Australia um, and Great Britain, you know, are the former imperial powers um, and Australia has been a a major player in the South Pacific, either in its own right or on behalf of Great Britain. So we enjoy reasonably close contact with the uh, Pacific Island nations, most of them. Um, There, of course, is also a French presence as well. It's worth bearing that in mind. So at one point when Australia, in preparation for the UN Law of the Sea Treaty back in the 1960s, decided to just map out all of its islands, it found itself having to negotiate with France because some of our islands touched on the French colonies in the South Pacific. So France is also a South Pacific power as well, a continuing one. So Australia has had a, an on-off relationship, I, I think you could say, that because so much of our foreign policy is based on following America's foreign policy, we then tend to allow our priorities to be shaped by Washington, D.C. And so we get bogged down in wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. Really, we ought to be the sheriff of this area. And sometimes Australia recognises that it has a role as the sheriff of the South Pacific. In other words, being the eyes and ears of Great Britain and the United States in this part of the world and, of course, mounting the highly successful Ramsey operation, which was the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. So that was a very good peacekeeping mission which Australia organised and went extremely well indeed. So there have been times when we have paid attention to the region and then times that we have neglected it. And I think it's this element of neglect which has opened the window opportunity to China. So the Australian government in recent years, well, I I guess you could say for many years, uh, irrespective of who's in Canberra, has not paid enough attention to the climate change issue. Now, of course, given the recent election, we're told that we're now suddenly going to be paying a lot more attention to climate change. But if you're in the South Pacific, you are very well aware of climate change because the water is coming up over your beaches. It's impossible to ignore. Impossible to ignore. And the Australian government, yes, it's done the regional assistance mission for the Solomon Islands. Yes, it's the uh, largest single provider of foreign aid to the South Pacific. But it has not shared the same degree of priority on climate change 
as those countries in the South Pacific. This has enabled China to come along, at least until this week, and say to the islanders, uh, look, we are concerned about climate change. Now, of course, China is a major contributor to climate change, but at least it uses the right language, saying that we, we want to try to reduce the amount of carbon going to the atmosphere and all that sort of stuff. So in a sense, Australia's neglect of the issue of climate change created the window of opportunity which the Chinese then were able to exploit. Yeah, and I think if you've been engaged in the news cycle in the last couple of months, the Solomon Islands has been repeated as, you know, this is in a way the Australian government falling asleep on the issue because China came in and it looked like they were going to sign that security pact. Is that an assessment that you agree on, that Australia's kind of dropped the ball? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I think one has to admit that, as I say, even though we've done good things in the region, including the Solomon Islands, Yes, we did drop the ball. I think that um, we were too obsessed with what the Americans were obsessed with, and that didn't include the South Pacific. I think now, I think things may change. Now, clearly, the Labor government, for the first time, has had a foreign minister who went to the South Pacific Islands as her first single trip overseas. This is Senator Penny Wong. I think her trip has been excellent, and it is interesting that um, as a result of her trip, um, some of the South Pacific Islands decided to reject the Chinese deal. Now, they might have done that anyway because they were just suspicious of what the Chinese were up to. When you look around the rest of the world, China doesn't necessarily have a good reputation. And it may well be the South Pacific Islands have said, look, we don't want to end up like another Sri Lanka, heavily in debt to China, et cetera. So they might have done that anyway. But I think that Senator Wong, in her making the South Pacific a priority visit, demonstrated that we now have a new government in Canberra and we're going to be paying renewed attention. Now, the risk will be for Australia to say, oh, well, China's uh, been excluded from this new agreement. It never went ahead. We can now lower our guard and we can neglect it. That's the risk that we run because the time of greatest um, danger comes at the time of greatest success and you then become complacent. And my worry is that we will then become complacent over the handling of the South Pacific and we will then again create a new window of opportunity for the Chinese to squeeze into. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda and this week's episode is all about the Pacific and its relationship with China and the world. Now, Keith, we were just touching on how this security deal, this secret pact with China has failed Is China likely to give up, though? Is that the end and off they go? No, China's not going to give up. And we don't know for sure what China's ambitions are. Um, I think there are a number of options here. One is that China is going to be a major humanitarian force for good and really does want to help people in the South Pacific. I have to put that on the table. We might have some pro-Chinese listeners who will say, you shouldn't be so disparaging towards China. So I'm saying, yes, it may well be. They really do want to help. Uh, those people in the South Pacific. Or they're seeking to isolate Taiwan by reducing the number of countries that recognise the Republic of China, that's Taiwan, as the government of mainland China. Um, And I I checked that by April of this year, 13 countries and the Holy See, which is the Vatican, they still recognise Taiwan as the government of China. We did at one point, of course, but we then changed in the early 1970s. In that, of the 13 countries, 
A few are in the South Pacific, the Marshall Islands, Nauru, Palau, and Tuvalu. So there are four UN votes, which China could scoop up if they were to win them up and, and make them more sympathetic to China at the UN or elsewhere. Another explanation is that China is called the factory of the world. And if you look at the previous factory of the world, which was Great Britain after 1750, Great Britain acquired an empire, not because somebody in London said, we now want to take over the world. I think the French were a little more deliberate so that when they went overseas, they sought to create French people. The British didn't. The British went overseas for trade. That was it. They're there to, to make money. Make trade, not war. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Napoleon, you know, actually disparagingly referred to the British as a nation of, um, of tradespeople or something like that. So, yes, the, the British acquired an empire in an absent-minded way and then woke up in the middle of the 19th century and found it had created the biggest empire in world history. They never set out to do that. They had their fingers badly burned with their colonies in North America, which they then lost, and the 13 colonies became the United States. So the, the English were not interested in creating an empire, but traders went out and did the, the trading, and then bit by bit, the British just acquired an empire. And it may well be that what the Chinese are up to is just following that British example, not the French example. The British one is that you just do local deals with local business interests, and then years later, decades later, you look back and say, oh, we've acquired an empire. I don't think the Chinese would want to occupy a country in that way. They would just want to have access to raw materials and have influence over the ruling class. That's how Britain governed India. Uh, they introduced cricket. The total size of the British army in India was smaller than today's New Delhi police force. So they were never an occupying power, but they just what they're able to do is to, if you like, occupy the minds of Indians, at least the ruling elite, and that then filtered down through that elite's communications with their own people. So it may well be the Chinese are just going to follow the British example and just come along with their wallets and say, we want to trade with you. And yet another explanation is that China really does want to create an empire and will want to create a sphere of influence. The Americans have had a sphere of influence over the Americas. So um, they obviously influence Canada, although it's a British was a British territory, but the Canadians are well aware that their major trading partner is the United States. I've noticed, by the way, that given the recent tragedy in Texas, that the Canadians have decided to tighten up on gun controls <laughs> to avoid that coming in from the United States. So the sphere of influence that the Americans have runs down through that entire strip of the Americas. So it's Central America, Latin America, and they keep out any other imperial power. So this goes back 200 years. So this doctrine means the British were never able to recolonize additional territories in Latin America. As the Spanish Empire collapsed, so the Americans prevented the French from getting in, and certainly the Germans. So that what one sees then is this American sphere of influence running the entire length of the Americas. Now, yet another interpretation of what the Chinese are up to is to say the Chinese want to create their own sphere of influence beginning in the north with China, and then running down through Asia 
including Indonesia, down to Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific Islands. That will then be the Chinese sphere of influence, modelled on what the Americans have done with theirs. So there are a number of different explanations as to what the Chinese are up to. Perhaps they're not terribly clear as to what they're about either. They're just let, you know, being very pragmatic, although the Chinese generally play a long game, very different from us in the West. We've got to get everything sorted out by yesterday. The Chinese can say, look, we're one of the world's oldest political civilizations. We go back 6,000 years. We're in no hurry to sort out issues. And this is particularly, I think, significant when it comes to Taiwan. I've had a number of trips to Taiwan, and you've got people on Taiwan who are saying, we're in no great hurry to make a decision about whether we stay independent or whether we join up with the mainland. We're in no hurry. Um, We've got 6,000 years behind us. We don't have to make a decision very quickly. What I find fascinating is that President Xi is much more impatient and he wants to bring on major changes within, um, by the looks of it, with Taiwan um, in a much more impatient way than his predecessors have done. It may well be that the problems with the Russians trying to get control over Ukraine might well have sent a warning to him. Now, as we speak, on the morning we're recording this, we've had a number of flights by the Chinese over Taiwanese airspace. So they're still intimidating Taiwan. But would they risk going ahead with an invasion of Taiwan? I'm not that sure. And and as I say, there's this ambiguity about what exactly does President Xi have in mind What's his long-term ambitions? He doesn't seem to be terribly clear in articulating, at least for us in the West. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about President Xi in that regard, this, I guess you call it a pullback on the long-term game. Do you think that could be at China's detriment that other countries are going to pick up on it earlier, as in, oh, well, this is happening too fast, whereas the long game, it allows them to slowly influence regions. Is that something that we're seeing in the Pacific and around the world? I think that they were simply too impatient in the South Pacific and it came up against the what's called the, the Melanesian way of doing things, which is um, slowly, carefully, cautiously on, and on the basis of consensus. And because the Chinese sort of descended on the region with a document and saying sign up, I think that offended a lot of the Pacific Islanders. It, was, it showed a lack of sensitivity by the Chinese towards Pacific Islanders. Uh, now, I've been critical of the Australian government because we also have difficulty understanding their way of doing things, but the Chinese make the same sort of mistakes as well. Now, whether there is another problem for President Xi, namely the speculation that China may grow old before it grows rich, he's running out of people, um, his population... Has, has pretty well peaked now and he can look into the future and see a declining number of Chinese, including those available for the armed forces. Whether he's saying, look, I've got to make the move now, I can't afford to delay it. Uh, and you've got others, of course, saying, look, the Chinese economy is just so fragile at the moment. You've got all the COVID crisis. One of um, China's major cities is, well, it's the, the most important business city is closed down, Shanghai. Um You've got a property bubble. You've got a, a, a railway infrastructure bubble. Now, in a democracy, I would say you have a, a foreign adventure to get domestic opinion away from your problems. Uh, so you therefore play up the foreign enemy. Chi doesn't have to do that. He already controls domestic media. 
So I can't imagine that he's he's wanting to have a clash with Taiwan, for example, just to boost his own standing in the media. So there is a lot of ambiguity about China's long-term ambitions. Where they were clear was in the South Pacific, and the South Pacific Islanders have rejected that ambition. Keith, those are fascinating insights and definitely something that's obviously going to keep developing, so we'll keep an eye on it, won't we? Absolutely. Listener.